Please do turn tonight to John's Gospel in chapter 8, where we find a most striking account of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of those moments in his life where we see the very essence of his heart and we see the essence of who God is beautifully revealed and recorded for us in this amazing incident which is so full of meaning. My subject tonight and title is Two Responses to Sin. There is such a contrast before us. We have this lady and we shall look at her and there are the Pharisees, the religious leaders and they look at her and their attitude is so very different to the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to look very simply at the contrast between how they respond and deal and approach this woman and how the Lord Jesus stoops down, condescends to this woman who is in a desperate, desperate situation. We shall look at the woman's sin. Secondly, we shall look at the Pharisee's response. And then thirdly, we shall look at Christ as he comes in tenderness and mercy and pity and gets down to where she is, no doubt, on the floor. And he's going to pick this woman up. And he's going to give her life when she has none. And he's going to restore her again with dignity and give her a life worth living. Oh, this is so precious, these words before us, the contrast and perhaps the surprise. There's so often a surprise in the parables of the Lord Jesus. There's very often a twist. And here there is a surprise in the way that Christ deals with her. And there's also many fascinating details that we might have time to touch upon. So let's look firstly at this woman, this woman's sin. The Lord Jesus has been teaching the disciples and those gathered before that. He was in the Mount of Olives, no doubt praying. He's got up early in the morning and he finds the best time of the day to pray and to be with his heavenly Father. And it says in verse 2, early in the morning he goes down to the temple. There would have been many people there because they went to the temple several times in the day and there there are gathered the people, all the people. One of those alls that doesn't mean all, it means all types and a very large crowd. It can't possibly mean all because the temple had a finite capacity. But it uses with expansive language all the people came unto him. A great crowd. So many people. And he sits down as they did in the temple. They didn't stand up to teach. They sat down and he sat down and he taught them. I wonder what he taught them. We don't know. Maybe a parable. Maybe some direct teaching about his very favorite subject, the kingdom of heaven. You are so earthly occupied, perhaps he said, with the kingdom because the Romans are dominating your lives. You've been occupied in this land 
An enemy has come in and they're changing your lives and you don't like it. And maybe he taught them not to think so much about this life and the Roman occupation and maybe to think more about heaven and hell. The two places that we will go to. There is nothing in between. Heaven or hell. Maybe that's what he taught. I don't know. But he taught them and he sat down. And there the scribes and the Pharisees come. When the Lord Jesus gathered, they nearly always came. They came to find fault. Lots of people like to do that, don't they? Find fault. The Lord Jesus was teaching. And they come and nitpick. And they come and find some problem with his teaching. And there the scribes and the Pharisees, they come in. And they bring a woman. I imagine they dragged her. Maybe with her hair. Maybe with her clothes. And she sprawled across the ground. Look at this woman. They could have brought her just with one or two to the Lord Jesus in private. But they find the most public place with the most number of people gathered together and they drag this woman and they say, Look, look at her. Taken red-handed, caught in adultery. I don't know what you think of different people's sin, but I think quite wrongly, we have these grades of sin, don't we? We think of little white lies, and we think of bigger lies, and we think of terrible lies, and then we think of things that we do, and Things that we do with our hands and things we do with our bodies and we sort of grade sin. And this woman, she seems to have been taken in what men and women describe as perhaps the worst sin, but I think it's wrong. Do you know what the worst sin is? It's not a lie. It's not sexual adultery. It's spiritual adultery. It's not believing in God or worse, telling him you love him, giving your life to somebody else or something else. That's the worst sin. I love the Lord. And then you go and live your life in a completely different way. Isn't that the worst sin? Spiritual adultery, but no to the scribes and the Pharisees, who define God's Ten Commandments in narrow, limited ways. This was at the top of the list. Here's this woman taken in adultery, and they plonk her in the middle. You can imagine them clearing a space in the dusty area outside the temple, and they put her there. Look at her. Look at her with despising eyes. Look at what she's done. Look at what an awful sinner she is. She's been caught red-handed. 
Oh, in that crowd, there were the religious types, but there was the ordinary people. I don't think all the people in the crowd for one minute looked at her in the same way. The Lord Jesus has been teaching and no doubt many of them, their hearts had already been softened. Maybe there's somebody here tonight and already the Lord is softening your heart. You're no longer looking at other people's sins, looking down at them. You're beginning to think of your own heart and what you've been and what you are not just what you've done. There would have been people there who were humble. People who had a heart that was open. And they were listening. The Lord had been teaching them, of course. There must have been people who listened to him and thought, that's right. He's speaking to me, to my heart. And there were those that would have had genuine questions. But there's these Pharisees and scribes and they want to trick him. And they put this woman before him as a test case. A test tube with a woman inside it. Bottling up her sin. Look at her. Go on, look around. Gaze. Gawk with your eyes at this woman. Let's put him to the test. It was one of those heads I win tails you lose sort of situations because they thought they didn't actually I'll show you they thought they knew the law of Moses back to front sideways up and down and they thought well if he sentences this woman to stoning where's the mercy and if he doesn't sentence her sentence her to stoning Well, he doesn't know the law. So either way, they were going to find him wrong. And they drag her before the crowd. They take her before the most public place, the sacred temple of all places, to expose a woman's sin. And they make an example of her before the people. We don't like being shamed, do we? This is what he did to me. He spoke to me in that way. Oh, we don't do that with sin. If we possibly can, we deal with sin privately. We don't tell others about other people's sin. We go to them directly and we say, you've sinned against me. And we try and keep sin private. Sin isn't something to be lifted up and put on a pedestal pedestal and told from the top of the mountain or the outside of the temple. That's not God's way. No, they thought they knew the law. You can look it up, Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 24. Not now, but there was a law. And it said this, if you were engaged and betrothed as a woman to marry a man probably in a year's time, Or within the year, if you committed adultery, you would have the death, probably of stoning. I once had a colleague who was engaged to be married and they went in the office on a ski trip. 
and it was made known to me what happened. Just two weeks before the wedding, you don't need to know any more. What a shocking thing. And so the Lord, as a penalty, as a, a warning, said, This is serious. You break a covenant? There needs to be a sentence. It's not a sentence that would last. It was there to show how holy God is. But actually, a woman who was married didn't have the death sentence. This was just for 12 months. If you broke a vow to a man who was betrothed, there would be stoning. It was a limited sentence. It was there as a warning. Marriage is big. Don't break it before it's begun. Well, then let's think of the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they come and they look at this woman and they'd already made their minds up. She's a lawbreaker. She's broken the law. She had, no doubt. But you know, the law that God gave was not just about physical things. None of the laws of God are. They're wide families. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Spiritual, physical. It involves not making covenants. Do you know that's breaking the sixth commandment? When you should be faithful and you don't make a pledge, a commitment. It involves breaking contracts with employers. It involves being unfaithful. What do we sing? Great is thy faithfulness. O oh God, my Father. The, the characteristic of God is that he is utterly, utterly faithful. And he would have us to be faithful. Imagine a world where there was faithfulness. No marriage vow ever broken. Nobody who ever left employment when they'd made a contract without explaining how it wasn't possible to keep it. Imagine a world where a person's word was their bond. But the world isn't like that. Because we all break the sixth commandment. And we don't make our pledges. We don't enter into covenants. The way of the world is you don't get married, you don't pledge, you don't join God in a solemn covenant. You live footloose, fancy free, as you please. The Pharisees, look at them. No trial, no evidence given, no opportunity for her to reflect upon what she's done, no speaking for herself. Who knows? Was she forced? Who knows what had happened? No time to repent. No grace, no pardon, no mercy, no forgiveness. No second chances. That's the way of the world, isn't it? Somebody falls, they do something. Condemned. Even though we've done much, much worse. No second chances. Do you know what we call this? 
This is one of the diseases that's the worldwide. Not the worldwide web, but the worldwide disease of self-righteousness. And it will keep more people out of heaven than many other diseases. I'm better. I can look down on you. You've done much worse than me. I have a better education. I have a better upbringing. I was born in a better country. I'm a better race. What happened in the wars in this country? People saying, I'm better than you. Self-righteousness that cost 40 million lives in two world wars because it was, I'm better. What a heinous sin, much, much worse than what this woman had done. Oh, we can't compare sin. All sin is serious. And all sin must be forgiven. But this woman, she has no opportunity because she's condemned. So the woman's sin, the treatment of the Pharisees, now let's look at Christ. Let's spend our time with him. Look at what he does here. They try and trap him. There's a trap laid. Verse 6, this they said, testing, tempting, laying a bear trap before him. So they might have some evidence to pin again. They weren't interested in the woman. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to seize him. And they needed something to pin against him. What does the Lord Jesus do? He gets down. He stoops down. And with a finger, he's going to write on the ground. Why does he do this? Maybe he wants to give them time to reflect Maybe he wants them to think about what he's just about to do and to say. Maybe he's diffusing the moment, taking the heat out. He wants them to think and the crowd to think, oh, what's he going to do? Is there that pathos and drama in the moment which he's using rightfully to get them to think? And he takes her fing his finger he starts to write in the dust and the sand outside the temple. He gets down to her level. He doesn't say a word. He's pretending they're deaf. He's pretending that he's deaf and not listening to them. Perhaps they were spiritually deaf. Not listening to him. Not listening and heeding the teaching that he's just given them. Lots of people conjecture. What did he write? Let me give you a few ideas. I don't know. Some say he wrote down individual names of the Sanhedrin and put their sin against them. I think that's unlikely. But it's a romantic story. Some say... How was the Ten Commandments written? The finger of God. And they knew that the finger of God had written 
the Ten Commandments, and so he's reminding them he has a finger. And maybe he was writing the laws in the sand. I think that's much better. Surely the one that wrote the Ten Commandments, not once but twice because they were broken, the first time the two tablets shattered when they were immediately broken, surely the one that wrote them first and second time, he's the only one that should interpret whether we've broken all of the commandments and how. One of the Puritans, John Trapp, he has another theory. He says, I think this is lovely, sin is written with an iron rod in tablets of stone. It will never be washed away. But when Christ comes, he sees the sin and he can smooth it away just with a hand. Did he write their sin? In the sand, and then he rubs it out. He shows that with Christ, sin can be blotted out. Perhaps turn to just another verse that gives perhaps a cryptic understanding of what this might mean. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13. This is a lovely verse as well. I don't know whether it means this, but... This is what it says, O Lord, Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee, those that break God's commandment, shall be ashamed, and they that depart from me, maybe thinking of the religious leaders, shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Isn't that a lovely verse on its own? Does it mean something about John 8? I don't know, but whatever. Not once, but twice, he stoops down and he will write in the sound. He does this the first time in verse 6, as though he heard them not. That's what it says in italics to give meaning to the sense, and I think it's very good. But when they continued asking him, they wouldn't accept the quietness. What are you going to do about this woman and her sin? He says some words that have become a one-sentence parable. Some of the most searching words ever said. Divine words. He lifts himself up and he says to them, maybe pointing that finger that had written in the sand, let him that is without sin among you, let him pick up the first stone and throw it at this woman. And so they had time to think and reflect and there was opportunity and grace and mercy. He gets down again on the ground and carries on writing. More of their names? 
more of their sin, more of the Ten Commandments, maybe a message for her, the woman, we don't know. But whatever it was, verse 9, when they heard it, this one-sentence sermon that stirred more of them than all of his teaching beforehand, and they were searched. They were sifted. They were awakened by their own sin. And the oldest man, maybe it was a man, I don't know, the oldest man, he leaves first. Maybe he was the biggest sinner because he'd had longer to sin. Maybe he was the most senior in the Sanhedrin. And it seems as though it was the oldest down to the youngest. And one by one, this must have been amazing. A thousand people. And the temple is emptied by one sentence. Let him, which is among you, who is without sin, cast the first stone. This has become a proverb, hasn't it? People know this the world over. Are you going to point the finger? Are you going to pick up the hand? You know that expression? Somebody that points the finger has more fingers pointing back at them than pointing at the sin that they're highlighting. Don't highlight other people's sins. Look at your own tonight. Their conscience is cut, torn. You can hear a pin drop as they leave the temple precinct. The dust goes up from all of them walking across the sand. And maybe the words that he's written now no longer can be seen. Am I making it up? I don't know. But look at the drama of it. A thousand people, two people. A baying crowd. Silence. And the Lord Jesus lifts himself up. And it's just him and her. What's going to happen now is the gospel in miniature. He's giving her time. He's patient. He's going to give her the opportunity for pardon. He gets down at her level and he's going to speak to her. This is a personal encounter. He doesn't deal with crowds. Oh yes, he sometimes does. Before you correct me, sometimes there's a massive crowd, but the individual heart is touched. He speaks to her alone. He doesn't name one of her sins. He didn't need to. She knew her sin. We know our sin. You know your sin tonight. All of it. He goes to the heart of the issue. Who's here to condemn you now? No one's left. Because they're all sinners and you're a sinner. That's what he was saying, in effect. 
Where are your accusers? Who's going to condemn you now? And neither do I. Oh, Christ, in all his mercy and love, he stoops down, he gets down, and he says to us, you're not condemned? I didn't come to condemn you. I came to offer free pardon and mercy. This is the gospel being transacted to the woman, being applied to her heart and to her mind. He didn't come to condemn. He came to save and to pardon. The gospel is full of grace, full of mercy. Look at the tenderness, the compassion compared to the hatred of the Pharisees. Stoner. Christ says, don't you dare. Pick up a stone, lift a finger. I'm the only one that can write with a finger. And I'm going to write on this woman's heart. Go and sin. No more. That's repentance, isn't it? He's saying, go, leave me. Show you've put your faith in me by the fact you turn from your sin. Go back to the man that you've committed adultery with and say it was wrong. I won't do it again. I'm going back to my husband. Never do it again. Not in word, not in deed. Go and sin no more. That's the gospel. The gospel isn't love, love, love. It's not about what I do, do, do. It's not about going to a building and looking at anything. It's go and sin. No more. Because you felt your sin before a, a compassionate Savior who puts out a hand and gets down to your level and says, go and sin no more. The love was in what he did and in his posture. And the call and the message was, go from here. Don't live your life as you've lived it up until now. Go and sin no more. Is there someone tonight? Up until now, you're no different to this woman. You're a sinner. We're all sinners. And the message of Christ to you tonight, don't look at other people's sin. Don't look down at other people. Think of your own heart and the burden and the guilt and the shame of being before Christ unwashed, unforgiven. This woman would have been destitute. She would have had no opportunity to live in Jerusalem from now on, her name was mud. And Christ lift her up. Forgiven. She had a new identity. She was the woman that's been cleansed and washed. She now has a new life. She would have put right what was wrong. I've got no doubt. And this woman who was caught in adultery is now caught by the love of Christ and swooped up and she's destitute no longer because she has a home in heaven.
and our home is no longer here. Oh, the love of Christ. Can't you see it tonight? Can't you feel him talking to you? Go to him and then leave him and go and sin no more and show him you desire a new life. Christ died so that you might be forgiven, so that you might be cleansed, and so you can have new life in Christ. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we cannot but be touched and affected by the compassion and the tenderness of the Lord Jesus Christ to this desperate, destitute woman. O oh Lord, have pity. Lord, forgive. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.